This morning we will give our attention to the instruction of Lord's Day 7 concerning true faith, and we're going to focus this morning on question and answer 20, which speaks of that faith as the living graft by which God unites us to Christ. In that connection, we read Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not know ye not? What the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruits be holy, the lump also is holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches, and if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. 
Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And I also call your attention to the very familiar text in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Lord's A7 of our Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, question 20, are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? And the answer is no. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we begin this morning, 
the instruction of the Catechism as it unfolds the biblical doctrine of saving faith, let's remember the place that this Lord's Day has in our Catechism. The Catechism has led us through the knowledge of the depths of our misery to him who alone is our salvation, our Lord Jesus Christ. And with the approach of the Catechism being pointedly personal, each of us was addressed with the question last Sunday, how do you know this mediator? Who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? And to emphasize now the importance of that personal knowledge, The Catechism asked the question, Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? We live in a day of easy Christianity. We live in an age when many are deceived into thinking that they have Christ. When What they have is a form of godliness that denies the power thereof, as Paul warns against in 2 Timothy 3. So it is important that we not only understand what is true faith, but that we can also testify of that faith being our union to Christ. And because the Catechism discusses salvation from the viewpoint of our lives and experience, it will go on to unfold from Scripture the contents of true faith. Faith has substance. Faith lays hold of Christ and all his benefits. Faith rests upon God's word. And from that point of view, the instructor's will use this concept of faith, and particularly the knowledge of faith, to introduce to us the cardinal doctrines of Holy Scripture. So true faith unites these questions. Who are saved? What is faith as it comes to expression in our lives? And must a Christian believe? What must a Christian believe? And so we will be introduced to the Apostles' Creed, which will guide our learning for the next few months. But this morning, I call your attention to the first question and answer of Lord's Day 7, question and answer 20. Once again, are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No, only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. So I take as my theme, saved by a true faith. We notice an exclusive salvation. Secondly, a wonderful engrafting. And finally, a necessary wonder. People of God, we stand this morning before a truth of immense importance. 
The question has us face the exclusive nature of salvation. All have perished in Adam. That stark and painful reality has been clearly set before us from Holy Scripture. The absolute necessity of salvation cannot be questioned by you when you look at your own life, remembering you live your life before the perfectly holy God who sees and knows everything. Even the thoughts and desires of our hearts are known to him. We are all as an open book. And he who demands perfect obedience to his divine law continues to uphold that law in perfect righteousness. We have also seen, contrary to the thinking of many today, that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. The debt that we have incurred before God by our guilt and sin is infinite. Not only are we not able to pay it, we only add to it. So only God's mediator can save. Only Jesus Christ could pay the debt incurred by our guilt and sin. The question is, whom does he save? In the Reformed tradition of the the Presbyterian churches, The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked this question, question 20, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? In other words, are all people lost? They're really asking the same question that we face this morning in our Heidelberg Catechism. The only difference is the Catechism which was written before the Westminster, asked the question from a little more positive perspective. Did God leave all men to perish? No, we wouldn't be sitting here if we thought that. So has God chosen to save? But whom? Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, Saved by Christ. You know, there are some who are bold enough to answer yes to that question. There are some who will tell you that God loves everybody and therefore ultimately he will save everybody. There are are those who take that position But you know, both from Scripture and your own experience, that is self-deception. The Bible teaches hell as a very real place, a place of everlasting torment for those who are not saved. And if all are not saved, the question that follows is a tremendously important question from a personal and practical point of view. How can I know that I am saved? Who are saved? You realize 
how serious this question is, don't you? Not all are saved. Not even in the church institute are all saved. After all, we read in Romans 9 verse 6, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In fact, when you look at the history of the Old Testament church, only a remnant were saved. And the apostle in the chapter that we read even speaks of that remnant. So when the biblical truth is set forth here, and it's stated that not all are saved, some might even have family members who are not saved. Some might have family members who, in spite of being brought up in the church and hearing the truth of the gospel proclaimed to them, know not what it is to be saved and know not Christ. So who are saved? We might have a tendency to answer only those who believe are saved. And yes, that's fine. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's a biblical statement. But what is it to believe? And how is it that a man who is totally depraved believes? After all, we've seen from Scripture that The natural man, fallen man, is dead in trespasses and sins. And you realize that as long as you say only all who believe are saved, all who believe Jesus are saved, then all who claim to be Christian will agree. but the issue is far too serious to treat superficially. And if you press a little farther, as you must, and you ask, who are they that believe? How is it that they believe? What is it to believe? Then most will say, they believe who will to believe. They believe who accept Jesus as their Savior. Or, faith is offered by God to everyone to be accepted or rejected according to the person's good pleasure. Some will even say that faith originates with God, but he bestows the power or ability to believe and then expects that man should, by the exercise of his own free will, consent to the terms of salvation and actually believe in Christ. And some of you who are knowledgeable in our Reformed confessions and particularly our canons of Dort will even recognize some of these statements that I've just made as errors cited by our Reformed Fathers, errors that they then refuted from the Word of God in setting forth the truth of our canons of Dort. 
confer, for example, the third and fourth heads of doctrine, Article 14. But that's why we have to know what the Bible reveals concerning faith. No one is saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And when we know that not all are saved, we had better well know what it is to be saved. Scripture reveals that they are saved whom God saved. To be saved does not depend upon the will of man. God is never dependent upon the will of the sinner. Salvation is entirely the work of God. Faith is the gift of God, even as we heard again from Ephesians 2 verse 8. God bestows that gift on whom He wills to save in Jesus Christ upon those whom He would unite to Christ, make one with Him. So we speak of the biblical truth of sovereign election. God choosing in Christ from eternity those whom he would save. The Bible also reveals that God alone gives life eternal. Christ gives life eternal to those whom the Father has given him. Jesus began his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, this way, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So when the question becomes, who are saved, the answer of the catechism is only those who are engrafted into Christ and receive all his benefits by a true faith. Faith is spoken of in a particular manner in this question and answer. Whereas in question and answer 21, the catechism will go on to speak of faith as a matter of our conscious activity. That's not what faith is first and essentially. So we stand before a very important biblical distinction when the catechism speaks of faith as an engrafting. Faith is that gift of that bond that unites us to Christ, in whom alone is salvation and life. Which is to say that by the time the elect sinner comes to a conscious, active faith in Christ, by the time he comes to that true spiritual knowledge and living confidence of his salvation in Christ, there is much that has already taken place in the recesses of his heart. A wonderful, life-giving, regenerating work of God 
preceded that conscious belief of the child of God. The figure of that living graft is a figure that demonstrates that truth. In Romans 11, Paul was given by the Spirit to use the figure of the olive tree in setting forth the wonder of salvation, especially for the Gentiles. And that figure is set forth as evidence of the absolute sovereignty of God in our salvation and the salvation of whomsoever he wills, Jew or Gentile, according to the flesh. In verse 17, the apostle speaks of salvation in terms of partaking of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So that we might say that the olive tree, as it represents Christ and all his benefits, is rooted in and partakes of the, of the fatness of the riches of God himself. In the figure, therefore, the soil and all the riches and nutrients of the soil represent the life of God himself. In his eternal counsel, he sent forth his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, his elect, the one in whom his soul delighted to be the life of the church to be, as it were, the olive tree. To go to the more familiar figure, perhaps, of John 15, Christ is the vine. In him are all the life and nutrients necessary for those who are the branches. Remember, we saw from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, He is the one who has been made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Salvation is only in him. By nature, we are spiritually dead. Romans 11 verse 17 speaks of us in terms of a wild olive tree, that is, branches belonging to that which is wild and worthless and bringing forth no positive fruit to the glory of God. And God has seen fit, according to his eternal good pleasure, to graft branches into Christ, the olive tree. Notice, those are saved who are engrafted. The branches don't graft themselves into a tree. They are grafted into that tree. This is an aspect of the work of God in which we are entirely passive. No more than a branch lying on the ground flies up to attach itself to the tree do you and I attach ourselves to the vine who is Christ? God does that. This aspect of 
of true faith is emphatically God's work as we confess in Ephesians 2 verse 8. But there is also something about this figure of the graft that is unique when it comes to its reference to a true faith. The unique nature of this figure, this graft, the process of God grafting us into Christ, also demonstrates the absolute sovereignty of God's grace in our salvation. I refer to the difference between this grafting, referred to in Romans 11 and by our catechism in question and answer 20, and the work of a horticulturalist or an arborist who graft branches into plants and trees. You realize that in horticulture, grafting is a technique by which the tissues of living plants are joined together so as to continue their growth together. It requires living organisms. But God takes dead stock. That is, branches that are spiritually dead and grafts them into the living tree, making those branches live. This wonderful engrafting by which we receive the life of Christ is ours in the miracle of regeneration. Regeneration is the miraculous infusion of a new life. We speak of regeneration as a new life, a new birth. In it, it is our spiritual resurrection from the dead. But what we must not forget is that when the Spirit implants that seed of regeneration, giving us life in Christ, he establishes that bond, that graft, which is saving faith. To use the language of, of our canons of Dort, in the four, third and fourth heads of doctrine, Article 11, the regenerating spirit takes that which is dead and makes alive Now notice that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good action. By that wonder work of God's grace, he unites us with Christ, with his life, grafting us into him by that bond of faith. That bond, that graft, is the power through which we receive Christ's life and all his benefits, consequently to bear fruit to the glory of him who saved us. No wonder the next article, Article 12, goes on to state, and this is the regeneration so highly celebrated in Scripture and denominated a new creation, a resurrection from the dead, a making alive 
which God works in us without our aid. But this is in no wise affected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion, or such a mode of operation that after God has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or to continue unconverted. But it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable, not inferior in efficacy to creation or the resurrection from the dead, as the scripture inspired by the author of this work declares, so that all in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe. Whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Wherefore also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of the grace received. So in regeneration, by the Spirit's work grafting us into Christ, we are given the faith which in consequence is called to activity by God actuating and influencing the will. Wherefore also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of the grace received. So today we see that the essence of faith is that bond or graft established by God himself and through which we receive the life of Christ with every blessing of salvation. Next week, God willing, we will go on to consider that other aspect of faith, which is that work of God calling this spiritual life to our consciousness so that we believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. But this, this power of faith must certainly be called to our consciousness. But our life is established in that living graft by which we are united to Christ. That's saving faith. The importance of understanding this can be seen most readily when we consider our young children who do not yet understand these things. If you fail to see faith as to its essence, if you fail to understand faith as this living grass, and instead look at faith simply as the activity of believing, the consequence is going to be 
that you have no place for little children in the church and in the covenant of God. Young children who do not understand these things have not yet come to the activity of faith. If life is only in Christ, and it is, but you have no connection to Christ because you've not yet believed in him, you're yet dead in your sin. Then there's no basis for believing the salvation of little children whom the Lord takes in death. But thanks be to God, the life that he gives us when he establishes that living graft that unites us to Christ is life eternal. Life that belongs also to those elect, regenerated children whom he calls to glory prior to their reaching the age where they consciously lay hold of Christ and all his benefits. So this graft, this living establishment of the bond of faith is just as necessary for believing as life is for living. If this graft is missing, there is no life. If this graft has not been established, there can be no activity of faith. But when this life-giving graft has been established, that activity of faith, as well as the fruit-bearing of faith, will follow. Outside the olive tree, or outside the vine, depending on which figure you want to use, Romans 11 or John 15. Outside that plant, there is no life for the branches, and therefore no fruit-bearing of any kind to the glory of God. With the living bond or graft of faith, we have union with Christ. Through that faith, we have his life. By our union with him, we receive of his righteousness, are reconciled unto God, made his children. We have to come to the consciousness of this. It's the conscious activity of resting upon Christ with knowledge and confidence that alone gives us the joy of belonging to him. But the conscious activity flows out of that living bond by which God has united us to Christ. Having life is in him. And having life, we live. Then you realize too, people of God, that faith is not another work by which we merit God's fellowship and favor. Forget about this essential element of a true faith. 
that of the graft established by God alone? Look at faith only as the act of believing? You are but one small step away from Roman Catholicism, which makes faith not only man's activity, but man's work by which we merit God's fellowship and favor. That's not right. God takes nothing but Christ's perfect satisfaction on the cross as the basis for our salvation, as the ground and foundation upon which we are reconciled to him and receive his fellowship and favor. Faith never replaces the cross. Faith is God's work uniting us to Christ. Faith, as we are seeing it unfolded before us this morning from God's inspired word, is conferred, breathed, and infused into us. Canons 3, 4, Article 14, as God grafts us into that living vine, who is Christ. So faith, even faith as it's called to our consciousness, merits nothing. Faith lays hold of the cross. Faith lays hold of Christ crucified for us, in our place. Faith rests upon Christ and all his benefits. It's the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. And how necessary is this wonder? The wonder of being saved only by a true faith, established by God himself as he grafts us into Christ, is necessary for you and me to be assured that this salvation This only Savior is our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. How else could we be saved than by God's own sovereign handiwork? How else than by the wonder of His grace How else could we be saved than by God making us alive? We have stood before the word of God. The depths of our misery has been unfolded before our eyes. We need Jesus. In him alone is salvation. In him alone is the only comfort in life and death. We don't have a hand to reach him. By nature, we're dead in sin. In death is no desire. We have no desire to come to him. We love darkness rather than the light. In Christ alone is salvation. We must receive him and all his benefits. Yes, indeed. In him alone is access into the fellowship and favor of God. Romans 5 verse 2. 
But how are we ever to receive Christ and all His benefits? How else can we be saved than by God grafting us into Christ? There's no other way. What a gospel. What good news to hear the proclamation by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. As we read in Romans 11, there are branches that have been broken off from the olive tree. They didn't belong there. There was no life in them. They were dead. Boast not against the branches. Paul warns us. By grace ye are saved. And when you've been grafted into Christ by faith, faith established by God Himself, you may be sure that graft will never fail. If that graft were left to us to make it effective and established, we would never have the certainty of it bearing fruit. But established by God, sustained by the work of the Holy Spirit, and drawing its life from Christ our head, that graft must certainly come to expression in a living, fruit-bearing branch. A branch that draws its life from Him and all His benefits. But this wonder is also necessary to show the glory of God. He will not give His glory to another. When we read that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life, do you think that He would give His only begotten Son to the death of the cross only to make it possible for a person to be saved? Do you think that God would subject His Son his only begotten, to the depths of hell, only to leave the rest up to you and me? Would God let that precious blood of His own Son go to waste, depending on the will of the sinner? Never. Salvation is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy. Not dependent upon a person's will, nor what a person might do even by strenuous effort, not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 9, verse 16. From this graft, which is the bond of faith, from this graft established by God Himself, the wonder work of His grace, you and I have salvation. 
through this graft, saving faith, God himself produces in us both to both the will to believe and the act of believing also. And so God is glorified in, a, in the salvation of a church in Jesus Christ. And we are brought back to the doxology of Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thou alone art worthy of all our adoration and praise. Thou hast revealed to us the wonder of thy grace, the excellency of thy wisdom, the beauty of thy perfections. Thou art our Savior, in Christ Jesus our Lord, and of thee and through thee, and unto thee are all things. To thee be glory forever. Amen.